So today, we're going to go ahead and kind of continue on that theme of what we've been talking about the last three weeks. So two weeks ago, we talked about how we are a light to the world. We're a light shining brightly that we are, in essence, we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ to this world. And when people see us, they see Jesus. And we're supposed to be shining brightly and letting people see his love in us. And then last week, we talked about how we should be mission-minded, which was kind of the, the springboard off of that. Being mission-minded was that we need to go ahead and, and, and think about what we're doing, what is our purpose here, and that's to reach the laws. It's to be out in the mission fields. And today, I want to take it a little bit deeper. And this is actually something I've ministered on before, but it's something that's really on my heart, and I really feel like it, it kind of springboards from, from what we're, we came from the last two weeks. And that's, we have to understand, if we want to be mission-minded, if we want to be mission-focused, if we want to, to share the gospel, then we need to have and understand what the harvest actually looks like. Who are these people out there? And we have to understand that they are valuable. Because it's... If you don't understand how valuable those people are, you don't have anything that's pressing you and encouraging you to go forward, especially to overcome some of those obstacles that we face, like fear and shame and embarrassment. You know, when you realize how valuable something is, it doesn't really matter. You're going to press on and you're going to share because you understand what you're investing in, what you're pressing forward for. And we looked at this verse last week, Luke 10, 2. It says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I love this verse because every time I read it, I'm like, I feel like nobody wants to hear the gospel. I feel like nobody wants to just wanted to push it away and not hear anything. Has anybody else ever felt like that when you're trying to share with people and talk to people? Right. It always feels, it feels like that to me in many cases. And I'm like, why does it feel like that when Jesus says, the, the, the harvest is plentiful. It's ripened the harvest. You know, it reminds me of like when, when I, the picture that pops in my head when I think ripened the harvest is always when I drive home along um, uh, Tangerine Farms Road, there's all the cotton fields, you know, the Arizona snow. It's all around us on, on the way to my house. And when they first start planting them, they, they grow up and they're, they're, they're green and they're, you wouldn't even know what they are. At least I wouldn't know what they are. I'm not smart enough to tell what they are. I can't tell what they're the cotton until they've actually bloomed the cotton, right? But they just look like regular plants, and then all of a sudden they start getting these little white buds on them, and they're, they're, they're kind of sickly-looking plants with little buds on them. And all of a sudden the cotton blooms out, and it's just like everywhere. It's just like, and that's the picture I got in my head. Because like, when you look into the field of cotton, like you know it's ready to go. You know it's ready to harvest. It is just massive white buds of, anyway, has anybody ever went up there and grabbed one of those? They are not soft at all. They're just like, Yeah. Another story. But anyway, it's, you look out and you can just tell, right? It's ripe on the harvest. It is ready to be harvested. And that's actually what's out there right now. Even though it doesn't seem like it. Even though it doesn't feel like it. And I'm always reminded, and it's like clockwork. Every time I start thinking this, I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, you remember when you were pushing everybody away? Remember when you didn't want anybody to talk to you about Jesus because you wanted to live your life and do your thing? But people kept doing it, and eventually... You are ready to receive it. And that's what's happening out there is people are ready to receive it, whether they realize it or not. They are hurting. They are broken. They're, they have no hope. I mean, I can't imagine living my life thinking that this was it. You know, you live your, your 80 years and you're done. But it's, there's so much more than that. 
And I think as Christians, if we want to be effective in this harvest field, if we want to press on through all the things, all the opposition that's coming against us, we have to start to understand how valuable people are. And I don't know if you've noticed, if you've seen in the past few years, there seems to be a turnaround of, of, of the customer is king in businesses. You guys have seen that before? Seen how that's kind of changing? Best Buy is one of my favorite examples of that because five, six years ago, and you guys know I'm a computer guy, I like electronics, so Best Buy is where I like to go. And I almost just stopped shopping there because you went in, one, the prices were always more expensive than anywhere else. And I'm like, why would I shop here when I can go on Amazon or I can go on Newegg and I can get it for, you know, a third or you know, two-thirds of the price and I don't have to pay tax? And I'm like, why would I want to do this? And then when you go in there, nobody's helpful. Nobody's going around, you know, if you need any help there, the people are just kind of off-putting. And it's, it's just not, it wasn't a good place to shop, so I kind of just stopped going. And somewhere along the line, a couple years ago, and this is something to note if you guys didn't know this, they realized that they were getting beat out by all these online retailers. They realized that, they're, that they weren't going to survive. And they've probably seen many other places, like, you guys remember Blockbuster? They didn't adapt with the times. They didn't value their customers, and they eventually went away. You know, especially when things like Redbox were popping up and you could rent a movie for a, a, a buck or, or Netflix when you could pay nine bucks a month and get as many movies as you want. You just kept shipping them back and forth. And they're like, no, we're going to do things our way and our way is the best. And they, they collapse. They, they, they crumble. And Best Buy, they're, they're seeing all this and they're like, you know, we have to do something. We have to change. We're not going to make it if we don't make a change, if we don't start showing that we actually care about the people that are coming into our store. And if you've ever been in there recently, in the last year or so, they're super helpful. They're always there when you need them. And now they price match. If you didn't know this, write this down. They price match every one of the big online retailers. Like if you go on Amazon and find something that's cheaper, you just pull it up on your phone and say, hey, it's cheaper here. And they go, okay, and they'll take the price down. Or if you find it on Newegg, they'll cut the price. They'll match any of the big online retailers, Amazon, Newegg, B&H, Adorama, I think. Couple, there's like five or six of them. And uh, because they, they want to compete for our business, they want to show us that we're valuable, and they want to go ahead and, and, and do that. And matter of fact, many times if you go in there, you don't, you don't have a cell phone, you don't want to work with that, you just ask them, can you check on Amazon, see if it's cheaper? They'll look it up for you and because they, begin, they care about your business because they know that you can go home and do the same thing. And, and, they're beginning to, and, and they're beginning to flourish. Matter of fact, many times I prefer to shop there because you get the benefit of having a local store. And now they're going to price match. And their, their customer service is amazing. Their return policies now is if in 30 days, if you, even if you just don't like it, you can return anything. Now. I mean, it's pretty amazing what they're doing. But what they've changed, they begin to value the customer and doing what they had to do to, to bring them in, to keep them coming. And I think as a church, we can learn and as individuals of the church, we can learn that as well. Because if we recognize how valuable the people that are walking, that we see every single day, if we saw them as Jesus saw them, as God saw them, if we realize how valuable they were to him, and in, in essence how valuable they are to us, then it might change our motivation to go out and share with people. I think we need to recognize that the church isn't here to serve the church. And that's a hard one to, to get by. 
especially in a day and age where churches are so big and they have all the amazing music and it's like going to a concert and, you know, they have all these great programs and they have children's churches and plays and, and, and they have, you know, uh, 12-step programs and they have, I mean, they have all these things, which are good things. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't want to come across the wrong way. Those things are great. But that's not why we go to church so we can go ahead and be invested into those kind of things. That's not why we go to church. You can grab a seat anywhere, Robert. But we don't go to church so that we can be blessed. We don't go to church so that we can be catered to. We actually go to church to meet with the Lord. And in essence, the church is here to, like we talked about last week, to go out into the mission field. The church is not supposed to come to church and stay at church always. And only deal with church people and only do church things. And, you know, you get to the church and like, man, this church just doesn't have enough. It just, I mean, they don't have a, you know, like coming in here going, oh, man, they've only got a few singers and, and no guitar now. And because and, uh, I can't play them both at the same time as much as I would like to. And, and, you know, they've only got a small children's class. And, and you know, they could come in here and say this doesn't have enough. So I want to go somewhere else. But that's the kind of mindset we have to get away from and realize that the church is not here to serve us, but we're to serve the church. Amen? And this is both corporately and individually. And like I said, these programs are all good. I think that those are great things, but the number one motivation behind everything that we do should be to reach people for Jesus. You know, when you think about that, even the little stuff that we do here, like we're putting on this Christmas pageant, you're like, well, how does that reach Jesus? Because it's an opportunity for you to invite somebody to get them in here. The whole purpose is to get people in here so that we can share the gospel with them. This, I mean, how many of you have family members that wouldn't go to church ever, but they might come to see your, your kid in the Christmas pageant? And it's a great opportunity. Everything that we do as a church is motivated by somehow reaching people for Jesus getting them into the church, getting an opportunity that we can share, that they can hear the gospel, that they can hear about the love of Christ. That's the purpose of everything that we do. And the only way to keep going in this behavior, and truthfully, especially as we grow, is to recognize how valuable people are. And how can we reach them? How can we share with them? And the truth is, is that evangelizing and, and, and making the loss of priority is not always easy because, truthfully, it's uncomfortable most of the time, especially when they're trying to push you away, when they, they don't act like they're interested at all. Especially in today's climate, in this, in this country where it seems like religion is just getting pushed away as far as it can. But I think if we can overcome and see how valuable people are to help us to overcome any obstacles... It's like there was a man who was standing at a, at a urinal. And it was one of those, I don't know if you're a guy, you've seen him with the big, long trough urinals. This guy, up and he's peeing, and a $5 bill falls out of his pocket in the urinal. And the guy next to him says, well, now what are you going to do? So the guy pulled out his wallet, he pulls out a 50, and he throws a 50 right next to the 5. And the guy goes, what did you do that for? And he goes, well, I wasn't going to stick my hand in there for $5. <laughs> you're willing to do a little bit more. If you see the value of somebody, he was willing to stick his hand in there for 50 bucks. And say, if we recognize how valuable these people were, we would overcome any obstacle to share the gospel with them, that they could have the same treasure that we have inside of us. Amen? Amen. First scripture we're going to look at today is Luke 15, 1 through 2. 
It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We're actually going to spend a little bit of time in Luke chapter 15 looking at this story here and the parables that are going to be coming up. And uh, the, the beginning of this is we have Jesus is sitting with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And they were all drawing near to be him, near to him. And we're going to see as we find out why were they drawing near to him? Why did they want anything to do with Jesus? I mean, he was just telling them the, that they needed to straighten their life out, right? They needed to live right and do all these things. I mean, that's the ultimate um, um, goal of having a changed life is to live the life God wanted you to live. Why would they draw near to him? Because he, he, he valued them, and they knew that he valued them. And then we have the, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're like, look at this guy. They begin to judge Jesus immediately. He's eating with, with tax collectors and sinners, He's eating with what they consider to be the worst of the worst. And it always cracks me up, the tax collectors. I don't know, if, do you guys ever think about some of the stuff that's going on in their head? They, tax collectors comes up first in this sentence. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. They considered tax collectors worse than sinners. Absolutely. That's just, it's bizarre to me, like, Man, it would have stunk to be a tax collector back then, at least with the way other people thought of you. But they hated them. They're, they're like, these people are the worst of the worst. What is Jesus, who's supposed to be a good Jewish man? He's, he's making some pretty bold claims, but he's sitting with these people? Like, what's the deal here? And Jesus hears them grumbling, right? So he starts to hear these, 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 these Pharisees and the, and the scribes whining and, and moaning, and, and he says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to talk about this a little bit. And he begins to tell some parables so they, they could understand what was going on. I wonder, too, like, is he just speaking to the sinners and tax collectors, like, while they overhear him? Is he speaking to them directly? Is he, I don't know what, what's going on. Like, it could have been just a little passive aggressiveness by Jesus. Like, here, listen to the story I'm going to tell, so maybe you can figure some stuff out. And he begins to tell the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then finally he gets to the parable of the the prodigal son. And most of you have probably heard all of these stories before. And he begins to, by telling these parables, his whole point is to encourage the sinners and the tax collectors how valuable that they really are. And it's a big deal for them to come home. That they're a big deal. that, That Jesus cares about them. And then next he wants to get the, the Pharisees to get it through their six thick skulls that, that God values these people as well. And they may not be perfect in and of themselves, and they may not follow or even know Jewish laws, but God still cares about them. And that's the point. Is he wanted them to understand. He wanted everybody to understand the value of the lost, of the tax collectors and the sinners. Because Jesus had a very different view of the unsavory types of that day and age. He saw them different than everybody else did. And he didn't try to shy away from them. He didn't try to push back. He didn't try to hide from them. He didn't push them away. He didn't make them feel worthless. He didn't judge them. He just loved them. He didn't see them and and quickly look away to not meet their gaze. Anybody ever done that with somebody before? I have to catch myself doing that with uh, a lot of times with homeless people on the side of the street asking for money. I have to remember that the, the reason I, I 
don't catch their gaze a lot of times. It's not so that, that I, th I think they're worthless. It's so that I, they don't think that I want to give them something when I don't intend to. But as I've told you before, God's been working on me on that whole situation too. Different story. But we've all done it before where we turn away. Like we, try, we, we don't acknowledge them as people. I mean, the least you could do is just smile at them and wave. Say hi. Because they're still people and God still loves them. But on the other hand, he never for one minute gave approval for their actions either. Jesus never approved of any of those. Anytime he met someone, even like when the, the, the woman that was, that was caught in adultery that got dragged by herself and the man was apparently off the hook, when Jesus was done, he didn't say, I don't judge you, go do whatever you want. He said, go and sin no more. Jesus' goal was always to free people from the bondage that they were in to sin that they could live the life that God called them. He never approved of what they're doing, but he still met them wherever they were at. And when we go out in the world and we share Christ with people, even some people that we might, they live their lives in ways that we don't agree and they do things that we don't like, it doesn't mean we approve of what they're doing, but we can still love the people. And the expression has always been, hate the sin, love the sinner, which has kind of become trite now, but it's still true. It's still the fact that, that we can still love people and not agree with what they're doing, and we can still meet them, and we can still try to share and encourage them. But if we're so hung up with what they're doing, we won't even be seen with them. We won't even talk to them without being smug. I mean, how are we going to accomplish anything for Jesus at that point? We're called to be Christians. And that word simply means little Christ. How can we call ourselves little Christ if we don't look like him, if we don't imitate him? Amen? In Matthew 9, 9-13, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and city sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This was that party we talked about last week, right? Matthew invites all of his, his tax collector friends and, you know, the lesser evil ones, the sinners, they came too. And they, they had a party with him. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting to me that Jesus calls a tax collector to come follow him. I find that interesting because typically you want to surround yourself with the best of the best. You want to, to, particularly from the outside looking in, I mean, the moment he did that in the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his credibility just dropped lower and lower. They thought even less and less of him. And that really had to get under the skin of the religious folks. That really, I mean, and we know it really bugged them. But I want you to know that the the truth is that some of the greatest men and women of God who ever lived had troubled pasts. Joseph was a prisoner and a slave. David and Moses were both murderers. I've told you guys about Billy Hall, who's with Praise Chapel. He works in Ethiopia planting churches. He was, a, he was in prison for murder. Pastor Kelly Lorca, who's one of the pastors from Praise Chapel in Kansas City, he grew up as a, as a punker. 
And like if you, uh, I have his, his book, is he wrote a, 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 bar, a biography called Punker the Pastor, and it talks about his life. And if you read about who he was, not a good dude when he was growing up. But God touched him, and, and he's a powerful minister now. And they see people saved. They do, a, they do a, uh, um, a hell house every year where they have thousands of people get saved. And a hell house is just a Christian haunted house. It's a haunted house with just like the horrors of this world. And people, the, the goal is to see that is this what you really want? And they, thousands of people get saved every, every year through this ministry. And that's just one event that he does. But he used to be a punk rocker with the drugs and the, the whole works. And God used him. And I know you're going to find this super hard to believe, but I wasn't born a pastor either. I, you know, it's, it's funny because when people hear about different things in, in, in my life, and they're always shocked and amazed. And it's like, why does that shock you? You weren't always a Christian. <laughs> like, why, why am I? Just because I wasn't always a great person either. I was probably one of the most selfish people you would ever meet. But God was able to touch my heart and use me. And it's not because I was a good person. And the truth is, is that now Jesus reclines with you. And he saw through the bad and he recognizes who you are. He recognizes your value. And the truth is, somebody saw that with you as well. Somebody shared with you and saw you as more than who you were at the time. I'm so thankful that people didn't give up on me. And I don't think we should give up on these people either. And Jesus goes on ahead and he grabs Matthew to follow him. And then he goes to this party and adds insult to injury. And he says, wait a minute, guys. The reason I'm meeting with them is because the, the, the people that are well don't need a physician. And this is almost kind of a smack in the face if you think about it. Because the truth is the Pharisees and the scribes, they weren't well. They just thought that they were. And he says, you know, if you guys think you guys are all right, then don't worry about it. Don't worry about what I'm doing. I'm going to go and hang out with these people that need a physician, that need somebody. He says, I came to call sinners to repentance. That's his sole purpose is to call sinners. You have to meet them where they're at. And then he calls them to repentance, to do a 180, to walk the way they're intended to walk. But it didn't stop where they were today. didn't stop him from going to meet with them because he saw their value. And that means that even the worst of us are valuable to Jesus. The worst of them out there are valuable to Jesus. And there's not somebody that's such a bad sinner that Jesus can't change their life. And one of the examples that I always like to use to get people thinking is, is how many of you think that Jesus could have saved Hitler? He absolutely could have. I don't think there's any evidence that he was. But I believe that he could have. And the reason I believe that, and I know this because if you think about it, if you take a step back, Paul was essentially running a little Christian holocaust before he got touched by Jesus. He was pulling them out of their homes. He was murdering them. And and Paul was a bad dude. And he was killing Christians. But God touched his life, met him where he was, and he turned him around to be one of the most powerful people and, and the influencing Christianity as it is today. And pressing, I mean, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. There's not anybody that is so bad that they can't be touched by Jesus. There's nobody that's so valuable or unvaluable, so corrupt, so evil that God doesn't consider valuable. And we should think the same way. 
absolutely. In Luke 13, 6 through 9, it says, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if we should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The thing about Jesus, too, is he's patient with us. You know, this is an interesting story because it's talking about a tree. And and give you guys a little insight, it's a parable. The tree is people. And we have people that are that are not producing any fruit. They're, they're, they're living their lives. They're not living for God. They're not doing anything. And, and I think the, the, the idea here is this is God speaking to Jesus and God saying, let's just be done with it. Cut them down. Let's be done. And Jesus is like, no, give me a little more time. Let's see what we can do. And this is a metaphor. You don't need to really put poop on people. But we're supposed to invest in them. The idea here is they're fertilizing their life. He said, give me some time to to spend with them, to help them to grow, to get out of this. Give me a moment. And the truth is, is is that's why, why, why the Scripture said that he's not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient with us so that none should perish. And he's patient, giving us time to finally get out of it, to go through it. And the point with this is that he didn't give up. Jesus never gave up on any of us, and we shouldn't give up on any of those people out there. We should never give up. We should never stop. We should never quit. But just doing what we can do. And I think that's the same attitude that we should have. And I recognize the Scripture also says not to cast your pearls before swine. So if somebody is is vehemently pushing you away, the truth is is that sitting there and, and continuing to share the gospel is not going to accomplish anything. You take a step back. But that doesn't mean we give up. That doesn't mean that we stop praying. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't have every opportunity to show them love, to show them compassion, to show them kindness. We don't give them every opportunity. They don't see Jesus in us. And we wait for doors and windows of opportunity that we can share the gospel with them. But we don't give up. Let's take a page from the vine dresser's book here and say, you know what, give me more time. Let me go ahead and continue to invest into them. And I think, as Christians, we should go that extra mile as well for everybody around us. Luke 19, 5-10, it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is the story again. The sinners and tax collectors. And he says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is another great story of Jesus going to stay with a tax collector. And, gee, I mean, Jesus is just irritating people left and right as he goes. The problem is, is that the people, that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they all thought they were righteous. They wouldn't receive Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with him. Matter of fact, we see those stories in there where, where the, the lady was at Jesus' feet crying and wiping with the tears, and he's like, send her away. And he's like, wait a minute, you invited me in your house. You didn't give me anything to clean my feet. You didn't do anything to honor me, and this lady is coming in and honoring me. Every time he met with those people, he wasn't honored the way he should have been. 
But he goes to stay with Zacchaeus. He says, hurry up and come down. And Zacchaeus, at this point, is a Jewish man. That's what it says here, that he's of the, uh, he is also a son of Abraham. So he's a Jewish man, but he's also a tax collector. So he's the worst of the worst. He's not even a, uh, a Gentile tax collector. He's a Jewish man that is working for the Gentiles to collect taxes. And they really didn't like those folks. And not only that, usually, almost always, they were not only just receiving taxes, but they were, they were extorting them. They were, it was kind of like a mob shakedown job. They were taking more and more money. And for that, they really didn't like these folks. But Jesus sees this man, and he recognizes he's a tax collector. This is the kind of stuff they did. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm staying with you. And immediately, Zacchaeus feels valued. He says, you know what? Jesus has come to seek me. And, and Jesus changes his life in an instant. And it says here, it says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And you guys are like, wow, that's pretty good. But if you know the background of this as well, what he's doing is he's saying, you know what? I'm going to restore to these people the same penalty that would happen to a thief if a thief was caught with the goods. If you read in Leviticus, if uh, under Mosaic law, says a thief voluntarily confessed his crime, he had to restore what he took and add one-fifth to it. So if he was a thief, he didn't get caught, but he voluntarily confesses, he restores what he took plus one-fifth. If he stole something that he could not restore, he had to repay fourfold. And if he was caught with the goods, he had to repay double. He gave fourfold, which was the worst penalty for a thief that they could have. Zach is like, I'm not going to squabble. I'm just going to restore everybody. I'm going I'm to just do it the, the worst penalty that could be had, and I'm going to go for it. His life was changed because Jesus considered him valuable. There's people out there that are walking in these neighborhoods these days that, that if we would just show them how valuable they are, we could have an opportunity to change their lives as well. In Luke 15, 3 through 7, it says, So he told them this parable. What man, if you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And what he has found, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. When the lost are called home, we're starting to see that there is an immense value to people being called home into the kingdom of heaven. It says here that, it's, and he begins to tell a parable that's like, listen, you guys can understand this, right? If you lost a sheep, how many of you would not just leave everything where it was to go find that one sheep? He's saying, if you lost one, you would go out there and search for one hundred. And when you finally found the one that was missing, you would rejoice like, like, and a miracle just happened. It would be like something that was crazy, awesome, it was amazing. I can't believe I just found this. And he's like, if you think about that, it almost doesn't make any sense because you're like, I just, I have, already have 99 and I just found another sheep. Why is that such a big, I already have 99. But it's because you found what was lost and that, that, that one sheep was still valuable to the shepherd. And most of you are going, I don't get it. I haven't even seen a sheep, let alone know what it's like to have one. So he goes, I get that. Let me tell you another parable that you all can relate to. All of us can relate to this one. 
says Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this is one we can all relate. Anybody ever lost money before? I remember it was a year or two ago for Christmas, I had taken all the, the gift cards and the, the money that I've been given for gifts, about 150 bucks, and I put it in, a, uh, in an envelope and I stuck it on the tree um, for when Christmas time came. You know, I'd have the envelope there as my Christmas present. So somehow that envelope got lost. I don't know if when we were taking the tree down, what happened, if it got thrown away. To this day, I still haven't found that money. So if anybody finds an envelope with 150 bucks in it, it's mine. So, uh, but yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I lo- and we looked everywhere, tearing the trash apart, you know, in there, you come around the corner, it been comical because my legs would have been just wobbling out of the end of a trash can as I was in the, in the middle trying to get it. I was looking everywhere for it because this is something we can relate to. You lose a little bit of money. Next thing you know, you're looking everywhere for it. Sheep doesn't mean nothing to you, but you know, you lose a 20 and then how have you guys ever? Like, gone to the closet and you pulled out something you haven't worn in a long time. You put on, you reach in the pocket and you find like a $20 bill you left in there. How happy you are about that. That's basically what she's saying. I mean, it's not like you don't have more money in the bank, but when you find 20, we go in Sizzler. We go in Sizzler. I mean, it's good to find some money that you didn't have. And that's what he's saying here. And he says, I tell you that when. That, that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, that one sinner who is lost. I mean, if you ever want to cause a ruckus in heaven, share the gospel with somebody. And then you'll see movement in heaven because lives are being changed. People are coming home. And heaven values every single person that's out there. And I'm always praying that I would see with, with God's eyes, that I would feel with his heart, because that's many times the only way to get over our, our own ingrained prejudices and all of those things and, and that go on inside of us is to see people how God sees them, particularly with people you know. With people you don't know, if you don't know their whole history, it's a lot easier to love them. But there's some people that you know, you know what they did last summer. You know the stuff that they've been involved in, and it's harder to see the value in them sometimes. You probably notice that with your family members. After you get saved, they look at you a little different and they have a hard time seeing you as a Christian. They have a hard time seeing that you change because they know you better than anybody else. So they, they look at you a little bit differently. So I pray always that I would see with God's eyes and not let that stuff get in the way because I want to see people how he does so that I would be compelled to share with them, to, that I would be compelled to love them like he does. Amen? In Luke 15, 17 through 24, this is the end of this, the parable, parable of the prodigal son. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will go, arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You guys know this is the story of the prodigal son. He was the, 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 the unrighteous, the little brat that's like, Dad, I just want, I want everything that's mine. I want my inheritance because I want to go. I'm out of here. I don't want to stay here with the family. And, and the dad's like, all right, it's yours. Go ahead and take it and go. And he goes, and, and like most kids, he, he squanders it all because they have no sense of what money actually is. Anybody ever known kids that don't understand how money works yet? i got teenagers that still don't understand how money works. And uh, they, they, he goes out and he squanders it all away. Next thing you know, he's living in poverty. He's living, matter of fact, he's out there working for this guy. He's feeding his pigs. And he says, I wish I could even eat what these pigs were eating, which was just slop and leftovers. And he couldn't even have that. And he says, you know what, I'm going to go home. He says, worst case, I'll say, Dad, you know, I know I screwed up, but just let me be one of your hired servants. At least let me, I mean, that my, his servants have got to be being treated better than I am right now. And much to his surprise, when he gets home, instead of being pushed off or being offcast or pushed away or saying, you know, you can have the worst of the worst, his dad begins to run to him and embraces him with open arms. And to understand how much that actually means, even more so than what we can see when we read it, is it was considered extremely undignified for a Jewish man to run. And his dad, you know, he, he, he girds his loins. And t- isn't that a funny? That's a funny. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, man, this stuff is just funny. He girds his loins. Anyway, he gathers up his rodents and he, he takes off after, after his son and he embraces him and he loves him and, and he, he says, you know what, I, I forget propriety, forget everything. My son is coming home and he's valuable to me and he calls him home. And he embraces his son, he welcomes him with open arms after his son just did all that dumb stuff. And it wasn't a minor thing. He took half his, he basically took half of everything that was his dad's because that was his inheritance, and he squandered it away. This family is now half of what they were resource-wise. But he still welcomed his son home because he was valuable. And that's what's happening in the world today. People are squandering what they have away. They don't even realize what they're doing. They don't even realize how much that they're hurting and painting a God who gave everything for them. But it doesn't matter. Because as soon as they open the door, as soon as they run towards them, he's going to reach open with open arms and invite them in and restore them to the position of honor where they were, to restore them to the position that that they held. Because that's basically what Jesus did is he restores us to the position that Adam held. And when Adam was created, he was the only person in history that was created as a grown man. He was an adult man who had no history. He had no past. He had no failures. He had no shortcomings. He, had, he, was, he was a grown man who was completely innocent. And when you got saved, that's what you were returned to. That's what you were restored to in the eyes of God. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your failures. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your shortcomings. But because of Jesus, he sees you with no past, no history, no shame. We're completely remade. 
And he welcomed you with open arms. And the same is for everybody out there. And God considered them so valuable that he gave his one and only son for them. I mean, if you think about that, how many of you that have kids would, would, give, would trade your life, the life of your kid, for somebody else? I've told you guys before, if I was God, you all would be going to hell because I don't think I could do it. Be thankful that I'm not. Because I look at my son or any of my kids and there's no way that I could do that. It even, to, to even do the thought exercise pains my heart to even go through the thought exercise. But that's how much God valued each and every one of us and everybody walking in this world that he gave his only son. He gave up the life of his son for us. Now that's how valuable these people are. That's how much God cares about them. And if God cares about them that much, that's how much we should care about them. And that should get us past any fear or trepidation or, or any of those things. Because the truth is, time is short. And we don't have as much time as we'd like to have to, to bring in all the people that we could. I remember once being at a conference and a bunch of young people had come up and they, they gave their life to the Lord and they, you know, they, they, thousands of kids came up and said, you know, we want to give our life or rededicate our life. And I remember hearing somebody say, man, I wish Jesus would just come back right now. So these kids, you know, would all get to go. There would be no time to backslide. And I remember in my heart thinking about, but what about all the other people that haven't heard yet? And that's how we should feel. When we look out there, our hearts should hurt for the people that are around us because they are so valuable to God. And the truth is, if they don't come to know Jesus, that they're going to spend their life in eternity completely separated from God. I tell you what, the truth is, a lake of fire doesn't scare me near as much as being separated eternally from God. I mean, I used to think, like, to, if you just want a taste of what that might, go ahead and, and, and lock yourself in a closet and turn off all the light where it's completely dark and that there's no sound and see how long you can sit there before you start freaking out in your head. They've done experiments on people where they've, there's actually a, a, a room somewhere that's, that uh, they've completely made soundproof on the inside. And, that, you know, they do all the, the fancy cone stuffing and all the stuff they put on there. It's completely soundproof, and nobody's ever been able to stay a night in there because it's just too terrifying to not have, to be completely separated from everything. I've seen videos of experiments that they've done on people where they've completely isolated them from stuff, and, and they, people go insane. You even think about it, just in the prison system, uh, when they put people in, and the reason why, why um, isolation is such a powerful deterrent is because it's terrifying in there to be alone with nothing but yourself, separated from everything. And truthfully, they could still call out to God. In hell, there's not even the ability to call out to God. You're completely separate. And that is terrifying to me. And I don't want to go through that myself, but I don't want anybody to have to go through that. And I want to share with everybody that I can at every opportunity that I can. One, because I don't want them to go through that, but because they're, God doesn't want them to go through that. He sent his only son to die so they wouldn't have to. We'll go ahead and end here today. In Matthew six nineteen through 20, it says, Do not lay up yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in 
and steal. In this life, as we live our life, money coming in, the, the place that we live, the cars that we have, the cities where we live, all that stuff is so temporary. And the real treasure that we're looking up to lay up in heaven, the treasure that we're looking for where nothing can destroy it, where nothing, it's people. The harvest is our real treasure. The, the harvest is the only thing that we get to take with us to heaven is other people that get saved, the people that we're going to meet there. And every single person out there is valuable and every single soul that you have an impact in is credited to your account. And you're going to get to heaven one day and you're going you're gonna to see that there are people that are, that are going to come up to you and say, you know what, you were instrumental in, in me finally making it here. And you were like, wait a minute, I remember talking to you and you didn't want anything to do with me. But that was the start. That made an impact. That made a difference. And I think that as we live our lives here, that we should be willing to give up a little comfort, a little, uh, you know, the, the, to, to, to battle, to, to feel like you're looking a little silly when you talk to somebody about Jesus, to give up that comfort so that you can have real treasure, that some, you might make an impact in someone's life. That they could have a change, that they could go to heaven, that they could have a changed life, that they could have hope again, wholeness, restoredness. Church, I want to challenge us to keep our eyes on what's really valuable. Amen? And that's the people that are walking around us every single day. They're valuable in His eyes, so therefore they should be valuable in our, valuable in our eyes. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet.